Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about press coverage. A little bit of a look at blogging, a look at the liberal mainstream media, and shutting the door on the 2012 elections. Before I get to elections, though, there was something that I saw on Facebook that I feel is worth calling out under the heading of putting to bed the 2012 election cycle and dealing perhaps a little bit with the aftermath. However, this Facebook post I saw came before the election, and it was a picture of the kind of external sign that a business might put out in front to call out a special sale if you were doing a liquidation event or if you had some new product line, some way of you know talking to your customers to bring them in. And essentially, this sign said that if you support the stupid policies of Obama and his cronies, then you can keep your dumb A dollar sign dollar sign out of this store. In other words, using you know crude language, calling people a dumbass, essentially saying, if you disagree with me on questions of national political policy, don't shop in my store. And I've seen a lot of that kind of sentiment lately, both before the elections and after applauded by people who have a strong partisan point of view. Now, obviously, I have strong opinions, and on one level, I consider them to be nonpartisan because I'm a radical moderate, and I support independent candidates rather than the main two parties. And this talk tends to come from people who are either solidly in a Republican camp or solidly in a Democrat camp. But what sense does it make for any business? It's the same question I asked about Chick-fil-A, by the way. What sense does it make for any business to turn to a huge part of its you know, customer base and tell them to stop shopping, stop being a customer, stop patronizing my store? Because the sign goes out, theoretically, because the person who owned the business felt like they had an opportunity to persuade. And their opportunity to persuade was based on the fact that they're probably just as aware of everyone else. The country's largely divided. Whether that's a 53-47 split or a 51-49 split, it's, it's somewhere way, way, way closer than 60-40. So you know the second you put that sign up and you roll it out in front of your store that you're potentially telling half your customers to go away. Well, it's not good business. It also probably isn't good citizenship. But it's not a bad place for us to start today looking at the question of the media and where do we stand with the media? Because some of the best and worst qualities, frankly, come out during election season. I want to start a little bit with a quick call out to the concepts I want to hit. First, I think if this were a history show, this is an opportunity to do what I've heard on other history shows, talking about what did the press mean? What was journalism like in colonial America? That if you were somebody who had like a a primitivist notion of the way the law should be applied. If you had this idea of the constitutional intent going back to the framers and the founding fathers, well, the media then didn't look anything like the media now. And one of the things I'd like to suggest is that what we call the media then was more like blogging today, that perhaps we've made a turn here where 
the credible source of information, or at least what I would describe as the reliable source of information, has moved from newspapers to blogs, has moved from radio and TV to podcasts. That's at least a possibility. The other thing I want to deal with, which I've mentioned here and there ever so slightly in inappropriate conversations before, is this notion, this question of whether or not there is a liberal bias in the mainstream media, and what does it mean if it's true? Because I suspect that to the degree that there is a bias that is liberally oriented on the political spectrum, it doesn't necessarily mean what people think. But in the interest of starting off with this idea of what does bias look like, well, let's talk about what bias looks like. I want to refer to the blog of Andrew Sullivan and kind of quote an observation that he made about the political pundit Dick Morris just this week from an interview that Sean Hannity did with uh, Dick Morris regarding his landslide prediction for Romney based on his analysis and his assessment of the political polls. Morris speaking, I called it as I saw it from the polling, and I did the best I could. And I also worked very hard for Romney. I spoke about what I believed, and I think that there was a period of time when the Romney campaign was falling apart. People were not optimistic. Nobody thought there was a chance of victory. And I felt that it was my duty at that point to go out and say what I said. And at that time that I said it, I believe I was right. Dick Morris, speaking as presumably a journalist on Fox News about his duty to speak up and work hard for Romney and go out and say some things that the data clearly said was not true. If there's a bias in media today, this is about as good an example as you're going to see. Ironically, it's not an example of a liberal bias. So what do we mean when we talk about the, uh, the liberal bias in the mainstream media? And you know, does that concept even make sense? And even though we've got this empirical sense about it, then maybe we could even produce a lot of anecdotal evidence. And perhaps, you know, I don't read a lot of these media-related books. When I got out of journalism, I got out of journalism. But it's possible that they could even quantify this sort of thing. I'm not sure. I'll get to some of the arguments in favor of yeah, a liberal bias mentality or the, the reality of it in the minds of a lot of citizens a little later on. But the first thing I'd like to put out there is to raise the question of who is the supreme authority in just the traditional newspaper business. Think of a newspaper model and you think about all the political you know, ideas of anybody there. I'm not going to suggest that the presumably conservative people who are you know, maybe in charge of the uh, finance department or you know, some of the other accounting teams would have the final say. They don't. But the editor-in-chief doesn't necessarily either. When I would gather together on a weekly basis for the daily newspaper I worked for and get into an editorial board-type conversation, that board was composed of the managing editor, the editor-in-chief, the editorial page editor, and an ad hoc member, in this case me, fresh out of college. The other person who was part of that editorial board and who chaired that board, and who actually had the final authority over everyone else in the room, was the publisher. This also was, by and large, the wealthiest person in the organization, the person with the most business risk in the organization, and the one who was likely as not to be more conservative. Now, I'm not going to suggest that every publisher out there is a political conservative or part of the quote-unquote 1% if we want to use that language, which I don't. But I do know that on the spectrum within the editorial board, there was no question that this publisher was by far the most conservative person in the room. 
I also learned a lesson early on in that first year that there was simply no editorial policy. There was no journalistic standard. There was no rule that the publisher did not have the absolute authority to stomp on, not just to Trump, not just to challenge, but to stomp on. It's what, this was his newspaper. And if we had a policy or a rule that we never ran stories about girls making the cheerleading team or boys making the football team, uh, that the sports coverage would be covered as sports and we weren't going to be using, you know, copy, editorial copy to say great things about, you know, how wonderful some civic leader's daughter is. Well, that rule went out the window the day the publisher's daughter made the cheerleading team. And not only did I get a call telling me the policy did not apply, and this was going to happen or my job could be in jeopardy, it wasn't just that there was going to be a three-inch story about his daughter making this team. It was going to run on page two. This wasn't going to get buried somewhere in the living section. This wasn't going to be next to the agate copy of sports scores in the sports section. This was going to be prominently placed. Now, to be fair, it didn't get a 96-point headline on page two, and the story wasn't any longer than two or three paragraphs at the most. But we broke policy because the publisher wanted it done. So if the publisher, who again, in a news organization, is more likely to be politically conservative than everybody else, more likely to have a great deal of business capital at risk, certainly the one person we would call a job creator, if we use the soup of the day language of political pundits, that person probably could not be described as some sort of liberal elitist. And yet we know that that person has more authority and more power than anyone else. So does this mean that there's no such thing as as a liberal influence to the way the media operates? Well, I'd say quite the opposite. You know, to me, I think that there's going to be some sort of a liberal mindset associated with working in journalism. It's less surprising to me that a lot of journalists have sort of a liberal approach or a progressive approach to issues of the day. What's more surprising to me is that there are people who don't feel that way, that there's this opposite that's in place, represented by Fox News, among other organizations. Because there's something in the nature of the news business that says that I want to be informed. I want to be unafraid of where a story is going to take me. I want to be willing to challenge the status quo, to push for change, to uncover corruption. I want to do things which are going to create progress. That sense of wanting to be a journalist and having a mindset about creating progress turns into being a progressive and that nature of being a progressive really trumps anything else about liberal versus conservative. It just so happens that we tend to think of progressives as being more likely to be liberal than conservative. When you look at the opposite of that, you look at a mindset, say call it a conservative you know, approach, the opposite would be that I'm not necessarily interested in moving anything forward or changing anything. I want to conserve. I want to keep things the way they've always been. So given the chance to expose a corruption in government that applies both to liberals and conservatives alike and might change the way we do elections. Well, as a conservative, I'm going to be really hesitant. I'm going to be unlikely to want to go there because I'm interested in preserving the status quo, not challenging the status quo. And if you look at the tone of a lot of Christian media and certainly the tone of, of media organizations that are willfully conservative in their approach, there tends to be a great deal of fear. Now, I'm not saying that those journalists are afraid to hit hard and cover the story and dig deep and find stuff out. 
but ultimately what they communicate to their you know, listeners and viewers and readers is a lot of fear, fear of change, fear of differences. And that fear, I think, if it's to be genuine, if it's not just you know, some sort of ratings game, represents a mentality that is probably anti-progressive. And therefore, it all ties together. But, you know, to the degree that we've got a shift of sorts, where there's either a balance in play where there's both liberal and conservative elements of media, and people seem to be finding the thing that speaks to their bias, or that that actual, you know, balancing that's been going on has brought some news organizations more toward the middle. The result that we've seen, and this is easy to understand, is is that we've got a much less amount of investigative journalism happening in the media today, and the quality of it is much, much lower. We simply don't have anybody out there that you would look at and say, if there's a Watergate-type thing going on in our midst, can I see the reporter who's going to uncover that? Can I point to the news organization that's going to break that story? And maybe it's not a question of political will. Maybe it's not a question of fear. But I kind of suspect that it is on some level, that the more the news business becomes corporate, the more the mentality of the people who actually have the power is going to be devoted toward the idea of keeping things secret rather than bringing them out and exposing them. And if you've got a mentality of allowing secrets to stay secret, then you're not going to have any effective investigative reporting. The two just can't live in harmony with each other. And I think that's really what we've seen for something like three decades now, that there's much more concern in your average newsroom, or at least when I left the news business, about being sued than there was about telling the truth. And it's important that when you're telling truths, you tell truths you can prove. But I bet you that there have been occasions where news organizations have had truths that they could prove that they still chose not to tell. Because this business of exposing corruption gets, well, it gets messy. But I think you're more liable to have a liberal mindset or a progressive mindset of media trying to expose corruption, trying to fix things, than you are on the conservative side of the, of the spectrum. What you're more likely to see if the word Watergate or gate as a suffix at all coming up on the conservative side of the spectrum is somebody comparing something that their political enemies are doing to some sort of gate, whether it be Watergate or Iran-Contragate or what have you, that you know, we've recently seen not so veiled accusations that you know some of the security lapses and issues that happened in Libya at the assassination of U.S. citizens, including ambassador there, is the equivalent of Watergate. This is language that I've heard from the conservative side of the political spectrum, from the media. And what it makes me think is that somebody there either doesn't have the wisdom or doesn't have the integrity to acknowledge that they're basically saying that for these things to be quote-unquote like each other, or for this to be, quote-unquote, a lot worse than Watergate, is saying that the President of the United States was intimately involved at the highest level in conspiring to make that criminal act occur. Basically, they're accusing President Obama of conspiring to commit multiple counts of first-degree murder against his own ambassador and their staff for some political reason. Or, they're just not wise enough to understand what the language they're using happens to mean. We see that a lot these days. The more media as a business has gone away from facts that can be proven and to opinions that can be shouted, we're seeing more and more irresponsible use of opinion. And a great example of this is, of course, Dick Morris, more or less acknowledging, even though he believed it himself, 
he was intentionally allowing himself to believe what he needed to believe, to say what he needed to say, to skew results of polling so that he could be on Romney's side and speaking things into the media that were going to, that he believed would help Romney, that Romney needed that support from him. The word truth just wasn't part of that conversation. So I'm going to resist the opportunity here to dwell too much on Fox News's biggest failing of all, because I think that there's a certain degree of accuracy in the accusations that have been made in recent decades, to the degree that there is a liberal bias in certain avenues of the media, then those avenues of the media are going to make huge mistakes. They're going to miss things. They're going to mislead the public because they're going to mislead themselves. And at some point, it's going to become embarrassing. See, because the media does have standards. We act as if they don't. We act as if someone who reports something, even if they report it accurately, and it makes my opponent look good or makes my candidate, my, you know, the candidate I'm a fan of look bad, that that person's somehow evil. No, there's news roles involved, including things like breaking stories, managing the lead, getting the second day lead right, or to put it the other way, you don't want to miss the story. You don't want to be the last to break the story. You don't want to completely lose the lead and not have the right, not have the right facts in the right places. You don't want to suffer the embarrassment of being the only major news network, either in broadcast news, you know, major network, or in cable, to not have an understanding of what happened in the state of Ohio on election day that ultimately decided what the ultimate result was mathematically going to be in the presidential elections. You don't want to be the last media outlet to get that story right. And sometimes you'll see news outlets under either enough pressure or in some cases, I'd acknowledge enough bias that they're so eager to put the story they want out there quickly. But usually it's not about bias. Usually that's the pressure to not be behind the story. To be first, if you can be first, and for some organizations, that's important and can lead journalists to reckless mistakes, but at least not to be last. And what will be more embarrassing in the case of, say, Fox News, than to actually have the story right, to be in the middle of the pack on the story, then retract it, even though it was right all along, only to have to come around later and admit that you were right the first time and you were wrong to have retracted it, and only then have somebody on your staff, a contributor, a pundit, still talking about how you were wrong to retract the story that you never should have retracted in the first place. Hey there, Atomic Trivia War fans. This is Jason with a quick blast. What comic strip character is known as Carl Alfred in Sweden and Iron Arm in Italy? If you guessed Popeye, you guessed correctly. What pungent herb does California farmer Chester Aaron grow 87 varieties of, including Creole Red, Spanish Roja, and Asian Tempest? It's not the marijuana, it is garlic. And who was caught stealing 42 times in 1982 to break Ty Cobb's single season record by four? That was Ricky Henderson. Tune in every week to the Atomic Trivia War, a new podcast on Simply Syndicated. I would argue that Carl Rove's staggering moment of election night incompetence is a good example of media bias. Ironically, maybe the best example we've seen in quite some time of media bias doesn't come on the liberal side of the spectrum. It comes on the conservative side of the spectrum, in the embodiment that is Fox News. Now, how do we explain Fox News? Because it's easy to demonize this group, especially when they're got people at interviews saying that they're clearly functioning as 
presumably an objective pollster, and all the same time pushing hard to support one candidate over another, or all the stuff that happened in their broadcast on election night, where they were actually one of the better examples of election night results in 2008, kind of going from near the top to near the bottom in quality. In you know, it's a four-year span, but it's actually just in one cycle. It's a pretty staggering drop. Well, here's the mentality of Fox News. And I think when we understand the mentality and where this mentality is ultimately leading us, it could take us in the direction of coming along and saying, you know what, maybe we're better off with blogging or even micro-blogging. Maybe we can have more confidence in somebody who seems to be almost individually speaking to me. Because at least then I'm going to have a little bit more control or at least a, an even better understanding of the bias. You see, Fox News is almost a mirror for a large piece of Americans, a large number of people who distrust the media and have had that distrust grow from the point in time when perhaps Walter Cronkite was trustworthy to a 30-year span leading us up to the point of the development of Fox News. I was in a journalism class once where the question came up, between me and a fellow student, and I'd, I'd known him for years, we actually went to church together for a while, where his assertion was that unless you were a Christian, you should not be allowed to be a reporter on a religion page, that a newspaper should have this litmus test, because most people in America were Christians, and he viewed himself as being part of the Christian nation camp. I've spoken my mind on that in previous inappropriate conversations, particularly the one called Anyone Ashamed. But he had that point of view, and his perspective was that you shouldn't be allowed to speak on issues of religion unless you, you know, pass the litmus test of being Christian. I rose my hand, and I said, well, by that standard, maybe the only people who should be allowed to work as religion editors anyway should be agnostics. That if we're so convinced that the bias is crucial, that you have to have the right bias to do the job, that maybe the best bias to achieve objectivity is somebody who actually doesn't know. They're not affirmed in an atheist camp. They're not affirmed as a you know, Christian or a Buddhist or a, Jew or a Jew. They're just, they don't know. The teacher corrected us both and said, you know, guys, you've got to understand that to be an effective journalist, it doesn't matter what your personal bias is. What matters is your ability to overcome that bias. And somewhere along the way, my friend Brian had lost all hope, all confidence, any belief whatsoever that it was possible for somebody to overcome the bias. And his dream job was probably to work for the Christian Broadcasting Network and Pat Robertson's organization or the Trinity Broadcasting Company or to do something where he could, he could be Christian news all the time and call it news. My hope would be landing more in a columnist position and a commentary position to where I wasn't presuming that the writing I was doing was going to be hard objective news. But he had lost his ability to see the difference between opinion and news. And this is the perspective that Fox brings. So if you are somebody who does not feel, if you're not a Fox News fan, and you're watching that broadcasting, and you're saying to yourself, I just don't get it. How can anybody not see the partisanship here? How can, I mean, it is so blatant and so obvious that Jon Stewart has made a career out of just making fun of it. He has got a position on The Daily Show doing comedy for the rest of his life. Because Fox News is his straight man. They set up all the jokes. But the difference is that this is how those viewers see the rest of media. To them, any twinkle in Dan Rather's eye is a sign that he's making it all up. 
Any stutter or stammer from Tom Brokaw isn't a speech impediment. It's a sign that he is giving a signal that he's against, you know, Reagan or he's opposed to Bush. It was all uh, hidden cues and so forth and so on where they were interpreting the everything is a smirk. Everything is sarcasm. And so when you go over to Fox News now and the, the program is 100 percent filled with snark, or at least seemingly so, that's the way they see the rest of the media. They don't believe that they're fair and balanced, I don't think, because they think that they're being objective all the time. They believe they're being fair and balanced because they're correcting the snark they see on the other side. And to be fair, they're not completely wrong. It's not impossible to find anecdotes. It's not impossible to find examples. But there's a kind of a moral code that I've taught my children. And it must have come to me from my parents or from a Sunday school teacher or a youth leader because it seems pretty deeply embedded in my mythology. And that's this. If somebody does something wrong, even if it harms you, even if it's egregious, there is always a chance that it was a mistake. But the second you do the same thing back to them, well, now it's wrong twice. Because if their instance was a mistake, your instance is not. And even if their instance was intentional and was a slight, you failed to turn the other cheek. The Christian answer would be Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying, hey, you need to turn the other cheek. If someone asks you to walk a mile with them, walk too. If they ask for your, for your uh, trench coat, give them your overcoat as well. But the principle, just taking all the Christianity out of it, to me, the principle is very simple. When you are willfully seeking revenge against somebody by doing something to them because they did it to you first, and when they did it to you, you knew it was wrong, you called it wrong, you declared it wrong, you complained about it being wrong. Well, which one of the two of you is willfully and intentionally doing wrong? There's a chance the first person just screwed up. There's a chance it was an innocent mistake. But which one of these two is far more premeditated? And if they're equally premeditated, the person who went out and just declared publicly that what happened was wrong and evil and should never occurred is still the more wrong of the two if they turn around and get even. How much of what a lot of objectively minded news reporters and observers get upset about with Fox News. How much of that is over things like revenge, pettiness, snarkiness, and retaliation? Sticking with journalism and conservative Christian journalists, the different drummer today is Lee Strobel. On his website, Lee describes himself as an atheist-turned-Christian. The former award-winning legal editor of the Chicago Tribune is a New York Times best-selling author of more than 20 books and has been interviewed on numerous national TV programs, including ABC, Fox, PBS, and CNN. Described in the Washington Post as one of the evangelical community's most popular apologists, Lee shared the Christian Book of the Year Award in 2005 for a curriculum he co-authored with Gary Poole about the movie The Passion of the Christ. I could go on with his, but essentially to summarize, he was educated in journalism at the University of Missouri, a very good public school for journalists, and later Yale Law School for a, a master's degree and a law degree there. This combination turned into a 14-year professional journalism career working for the Chicago Tribune. At some point in his journey, Lee became a Christian. And it was this conversion that led him to his current career. 
uh, Wikipedia describes his in his biography as him being yeah, really more than just a journalist and an author, but also a pastor. He has worked in a teaching position at the pastorate of some of the mega churches in both the Chicago area and also in Southern California. I want to cite Lee Strobel in two different ways. First, positively for his books. And second, with a bit of a potential you know, negative criticism. I've got a sense of weariness about his point of view. And it, just to put that right out front and kind of get us thinking about that, I think maybe that weariness comes from this quote from the homepage of his website today, where he is recommending a viewer's choice video link under the heading of what all attacks against Christianity have in common. So he may be part of the <clears throat> war on Christmas, Christians as an embattled minority, sort of a lot of the hyperbole. I am strongly opposed to the hyperbole. The exact opposite of that, though, is the first couple of books that I encountered from Strobel. The Case for Christ, a journalist's personal investigation of the evidence for Jesus, published in 1998, Zondervan Press, and two years later, The Case for Faith, a journalist investigates the toughest objections to Christianity. These are books which are apologetic. Strobel is writing these books, the first one in particular, kind of talking about, you know, where was he in his journey when he was a non-believer, and what evidence did he investigate over a more than two-year span that kind of cleared his questions and answered his objections and challenged him back with questions of his own to grapple with that led him to accept his wife's recent conversion, or relatively recent conversion, to Christianity and become a faithful Christian. In the case for Christ, he walks through a lot of the process, a lot of the evidence he looks at. One of the things I like about Strobel is even though he's written an apologetic book, I would not describe it as the equivalent or an answer to the atheist perspective that you see so often stridently presented by people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. He's not, in other words, putting his own point of view out there or setting himself up as a pedestal as someone who knows all the answers. And like it or not, that's often the impression that you get from people like Dawkins. I do not intend that observation to be an attack against writers like Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris. I think they contribute something to the dialogue and conversation we ought to be having. It is unfortunate, though, that a lot of times these conversations, whether they're coming from the apologetic perspective of the people Lee Strobel interviewed, or coming from the atheist perspective, well, they're not conversations at all, are they? To me, the thing I would encourage is whether you were to pick up the case for Christ or the case for faith, I'll make a recommendation about that here in just a second. I would recommend doing so not from the perspective of I'm reading this book and I'm starting off from page one trying to debunk, trying to prove wrong, trying to rail, trying to reject. It's interesting to read the opposite perspective on any issue. I've spoken this before. When I like a show, and I know that it's not as popular you know, worldwide as I think it should be, I always want to seek reviews, but I don't go seeking reviews to validate my point of view. If you only read information that validates your worldview, that probably says there's something wrong with your point of view. It's not strong enough to stand up for itself. It needs to be bolstered. It needs to be supported. Now, that's not to say that you should not read things which are encouraging and edifying and support your position. But if that's all you're reading... And if the only time you read an opposite point of view is to, is to make sure that when you're done, it's a straw man and that's been burned at the stake appropriately, well, there's something wrong. A wise person is able to take on an idea without accepting it. 
and is able to take on the idea without necessarily feeling a need to reject it either. It's from that perspective that I kind of recommend these books. The other thing is he, he doesn't come to it from the perspective of, again, he's got the final answer. He's telling a story of his journey where he acknowledges right up front he doesn't know anything. And he's letting people who know more than he does make the case. There's just a couple of examples I'd like to cite to give a sense of what these books are about. From the perspective of the uh, Passion of the Christ, I had mentioned the Passion of the Christ as being one of the films about Jesus worth seeing. And the number one reason that I feel that way, because to me it is you know, among the least of the three of the best that there are, but at least it tells the story of a Jesus that actually did die on the cross. And I referred to the movie before in other podcasts as being necessary. Now, that doesn't make it a good movie. But as long as there's a lot of Muslims in the world, and definitely some atheists and agnostics who suggested, you know what, maybe those post-death sightings of Jesus were real, but that Jesus didn't really die. Maybe it became necessary to make a movie like The Passion of the Christ to depict what crucifixion really looked like. In this particular interview in the book, Strobel spoke with Alexander Metherell, a doctor. I mentioned him as a doctor, not because I want to call attention to his degrees, but that he actually has medical experience. He's a medical doctor. His quote is this, about crucifixion. The pain was absolutely unbearable. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe it. They had to invent a new word, excruciating. Literally, excruciating means out of the cross. Think of that. They needed to create a new word because there was nothing in the language of the time that could describe the intense anguish caused during crucifixion. To me, the other, the other part of the book that I find most fascinating comes pretty late, and it's the circumstantial evidence piece where he talks with philosopher and scientist J.P. Moreland about the evidence that exists for believing that Christianity wasn't just made up. He uh, cites certain specific things, like the disciples dying for their beliefs. There's lots of opinions both ways about that. I won't dwell on it. The conversion of skeptics, Paul being one example, but Paul's not the only example, where in a non-coercive way, not by the sword, so to speak, skeptics were converted. Now, to me, the one that really, I think, rang with me the most was under the heading that changes to key social structures. You've got a group of followers of Jesus who were Jews, who wanted to remain Jews, who were you know, embedded deeply in the social structures of Judaism. And originally, until Paul came along, a lot of people were spreading Christianity by having people convert to Judaism first. They called them Judaizers at the time when a negative backlash came about this practice. But at first, again, these initial disciples, the first apostles, were so committed to Christianity being a sect of Judaism that it was spread in just that manner. So how do you come along just a decade or two later and have these exact same people rejecting everything that their culture and their religion called for? It wasn't just Paul. Peter also came to the same revelation that following Christ may mean not being Jewish anymore. They're willing to give up all, or alter all, of five of the social institutions that they had been taught since they were very, very young. The example cited by Moreland in the uh, Strobel book, The Case for Christ. First, <clears throat> they'd been taught ever since the time of Abraham and Moses they needed to offer animal sacrifice on a yearly basis to atone for their sins. At the death of Jesus on a cross, that goes away. Second, they needed to obey laws that God had entrusted them with through Moses. Again, it took a while, but through Paul, that completely goes away. 
Third, Jews scrupulously kept the Sabbath, not doing any work or even lighting a fire, as part of the religious devotion from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. It took maybe a hundred years, but that completely changed. Fifteen hundred years of tradition wiped out, with Christians now worshiping on Sunday, in part because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. Fourth, Jews are stridently monotheistic. This is probably the number one thing you hear if you have an apologetic conversation with a Jewish person today. And Christianity, despite still being a theistic religion, and by and large, I think, still qualifying as a monotheistic religion, does argue about relationships with God coming in three ways. This whole Father, Son, and Holy Spirit thing has not been accepted by any of the other theistic religions as being monotheism, at least not to its core. And fifth and finally, these Christians had pictured a Messiah as someone who would suffer and die, whereas the Jews had been trained to believe that the Messiah was going to be a political leader who would triumph over Rome and destroy their armies. It's a very different view, and the changes come very, very quickly. Moreland puts it this way, in summary, if you were a Martian looking down on the first century, would you think that Christianity or the Roman Empire would survive? Which one, in other words, would prevail? You probably wouldn't put your money on this ragtag group of people whose primary message was that a crucified carpenter from an obscure village had triumphed over the grave. Yet it was so successful that today we name our children Peter and Paul and our dogs Caesar and Nero. That's the case for Christ. And again, I'm not going to advocate that that's the best written book of apologetics I've ever you know, picked up, but it's a good one. And it's part of the conversation. It's an important book to read, especially if you disagree with the conclusions in Christianity. As a matter of fact, I would make an argument that some of the things in that book can be turned around and offered back to evangelicals today. What in the world happened between the apostles following Peter and Paul and rejecting a slavish devotion to Jewish law? And now, when every time a key social issue comes up, Jesus is rarely cited. Most of the time you hear evangelical Christians quoting Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah. It's as if Jesus is a footnote in history to them. The book that I prefer of the two is The Case for Faith. And it's interesting that even though on the shelf they look like they're of similar length, the print on The Case for Faith is smaller, meaning there's more words on those pages, and I would argue more ideas within the book itself. In the case for faith, again, Strobel, as a journalist, goes through the process of interviewing key thinkers, opinion leaders, from the Christian perspective, on answers to challenging questions. Evil, miracles, evolution, things in scripture which seem upsetting. God isn't worthy of worship if he kills innocent children, for example. The claim that Jesus is the only way to God. Whether um, hell makes sense. Or what about church history being littered with oppression and violence? Or just the question of doubt in general? This book, again, doesn't always come to answers that I agree with, or doesn't necessarily come up with my answers. Let's put it that way. But it's an interesting read. I'll cite a couple of examples from the uh, chapter, Church History is Littered with Oppression and Violence. It provides answers to questions related to the Crusades and the Inquisition. The resource, John D. Woodbridge, says this, Nobody was more outspoken against hypocrisy or cruelty than Jesus. Consequently, if critics believe that aspects of the Crusades should be denounced as hypocritical and violent, well, they'd have an ally in Christ. 
These are big questions, legitimate questions, evil, pain and suffering, hell, so forth and so on. It's good that there's somebody on the Christian side of it who's willing to do the work of actually interviewing people and coming back with a perspective and putting out a book on apologetics that acknowledges right up front that it is speaking for a perspective. It is making a case. Where I stepped off, and the book that I haven't read yet in the series, one of the next books in the series, in fact, was the case for a creator. It's not that I need to be persuaded about the case. It's just that I don't like the attitude and the approach to it. There's a bit of a straw man argument that gets played in this element of apologetics from Christians, where it's sort of an either or all or nothing that is played, where they lose sight of the fact from time to time that God has given us evidence that we need to understand in creation, as well as evidence that we need to understand within Scripture. And the only thing I'll say about it now, it seems like a topic that is better explored at another time. But it's enough to say for now that both of these revelations need to be explored, and they need to be reconciled with each other. And the principles of biblical hermeneutics should take into account scientific discovery and scientific exploration. There are questions about origins that science has not answered and perhaps never will be able to answer. But there's also questions about origins that Scripture gives an insufficient answer from a scientific perspective. There is nothing wrong. It is not a retreat. It is not a betrayal of the faith in any way to acknowledge that. Sometimes, though, with this particular different drummer, you see this a lot. Lee Strobel, if you follow him at all on you know Twitter or Facebook, takes a lot of sides. He has perhaps more strident positions on some of these sort of quasi-political issues than he should. I don't know whether I would describe him as being firmly entrenched in the politically active Christian camp, this PAC abbreviation that I've used in the past to describe people whose you know faith is suspect because it is beholden to their political point of view first and foremost. But it's tempting because what I want to do after the break is talk a little bit about a blog that was forwarded to me through Lee Strobel with uh, 10 questions a pro-choice candidate is never asked by the media. The uh, author, Trevin Wax, makes the presumption that debate moderators always give pro-life candidates a brutally hard time with <clears throat> difficult questions and grill them on them, but always give pro-choice candidates a complete pass. This perhaps is the worldview of Lee Strobel. It's consistent with the worldview of a lot of evangelical Christianity. That's not a character trait I'd like to endorse. Do you love Star Trek? How about a good, scary movie? Do sexy warrior princesses haunt your dreams? Then you'll love Starbase 66, the international Star Trek horror and fantasy podcast. Join Rick, Karen, and Kennedy each week as they discuss your favorite and not-so-favorite movies and TV shows, only on the simply syndicated 21st Century Media Network. Two weeks before the election, in the aftermath of the debates, this blog was forwarded to me via Twitter, and it raises 10 questions that you'll never hear a pro-choice candidate asked by the media. The presumption is, of course, that the Romney camp is doing very poorly on issues related to women's health and sexuality in general. So many Republican candidates stumbling over their words, misspeaking, or perhaps more honestly, 
accurately sharing their perspective with all of its baggage and shortcomings on questions related to rape, abortion, and birth control. And the point of view of this blogger and Lee Strobel seems to be that, well, you'd, you'd get a lot of faux pas as well if the media was asking pro-choice candidates the same questions or different questions that are more opposed to them. Again, really deeply embedded in this idea that there's this bias out there. I think that the number one reason that the Romney camp was being asked those questions is that the Romney camp itself had made them an issue. First, he'd flip-flopped more than one occasion based on his point of view. Second, he picked a running mate who'd had very strident positions on issues related, particularly related to contraception, rape, and abortion. So the questions needed to be directed his way. And opportunities, I believe, were given to him to clarify his point of view. And he just wasn't getting any help from the rest of his political party and clearly didn't help himself well enough either. Now, I want to take on this challenge of answering these questions and finishing this particular episode about the press and the media and bias by you know doing the best I can as somebody who's neither pro-choice nor pro-life, who's neither Republican nor Democrat, or technically I'm Republican, but I'm neither conservative nor liberal. I'll do my best to put on the hat of somebody who does have a more strident pro-choice position than probably I do. And give a shot at answering these questions, because I believe that the assumption here is that these questions can't be answered well, and I don't think that's true. To make it fair, it was round about October 24th that I saw this article, read enough of it to know that it needed to be handled in this particular inappropriate conversation show. So I printed it, I've set it on my desk, buried it under some other stuff related to other things I've been working on, and have not really read it again. I've tried to do zero study and zero preparation. Now, I've got a little bit of an edge, and then I've skimmed through the questions one time. But that one time was almost a month ago, and I haven't read it since. And I want to come to it, again, not necessarily from my own point of view. I'll provide some clarification along the way if I need to. But to try to come to it from the point of view of the, well, the candidate they wanted to ask the questions of, whether that be Obama or somebody else, I'm not going to pretend to be any given Democrat. But let's be honest. This is a question saying the Democratic Party has a point of view, and they're never called to task to answer these particular questions. So here goes. Question number one. You say you support a woman's right to make her own reproductive choices in regards to abortion and contraception. Are there any restrictions you would approve of? Well, maybe the best answer to that is still the essay Judith Jarvis Thompson wrote in 1971 called A Defense of Abortion. I think that we've got to be very careful when we're dealing with restrictions, because at the end of the day, we are talking about a woman and her life and her health and her well-being and the woman being the owner of the body. So to understand what those restrictions might be, it really comes down to understanding what sort of rights we give to somebody who's a homeowner and then taking that up a notch when it comes to the rights that you would give to somebody if instead of it being something that they own, like property, it was actually their very self. So we give somebody the right to tell somebody that they must leave their property. And even if leaving their property led to their imminent death, would we give somebody that right? I don't know that we would be happy and proud of conferring it, but I guarantee we wouldn't take it away. I'm talking about the government doesn't have the right to come and take your land. The government doesn't have the right to come and take, you know, tell you what you can and can't do on your property. At the end of the day, if somebody trespasses, if somebody who's unwanted is invading your home, you've got the right to expel them. You've got the right to expel them with deadly violence. And whatever restrictions we may come up with, have got to answer to that standard first. Question two. 
In 2010, The Economist featured a cover story on the war on girls and the growth of genocide around the world, abortion based solely on the sex of the baby, for example. Does this phenomenon pose a problem for you, and do you believe in the absolute right of a woman to terminate a pregnancy because the unborn fetus is female? Well, of course it troubles me. It troubles me any time that anybody is making this kind of decision based on this standard. And I think that there are things that governments can do to discourage that that don't necessarily come with this black and white decision of abortion yes, abortion no. I mean, right now the debate that we're having in this country is about a constitutional amendment to ban. The idea is overturning Roe versus Wade and then going state by state and overturning all those state laws. I don't think you have to go backward to where we were in 1972, which, by the way, your average conservative is going to find very disappointing because the state of the law in America today meant that it would be still relatively easy for women to obtain an abortion. They may have to travel to do it, but they can get it done. So the reality is, how can we find ways through education through communication, through social outreach, to impact that decision without resorting to the law. I remember Judge Robert Bork speaking in the mid-1980s during his testimony for becoming, potentially becoming a Supreme Court justice. He said, you know what, this is such a cliche, it almost doesn't need to be said, but the more the laws, the more corrupt the country. If laws are your solution to a problem, you're probably not doing a very good job of managing your society. And there's no better example of that than abortion politics. You know, we want to manage this decision. We want to, to intervene and get people to make better decisions about not making gender-based decisions on abortion and terminating pregnancy. There are better ways than passing a law. And you know, ultimately, you're going to have to imprison the mother. We'll get to that later, I'm sure. Number three, in many states, a teenager can have an abortion without her parents' consent or knowledge, but cannot get an aspirin from the school nurse without parental authorization. Do you support any restrictions or parental notification regarding abortion access for minors? Well, it's an interesting question and a loaded question, because perhaps one of the things we should be talking about is whether or not we've gone too far in a litigious extreme on you know, things that force school nurses to not be able to you know, administer an over-the-counter drug like Tylenol or something when a kid is hurting and injured in some way. So maybe the school nurse ought to be able to perform certain functions without parental notification. But we've become such a litigious society that I'm sure that the school system is terrified of what might happen if the kid, knowing that they were allergic to this particular drug, just didn't share that with the nurse. Or if the parents at the beginning of the school year didn't fill out the paperwork properly and an honest mistake, or perhaps a mistake created by the negligence of the child or the parent could ultimately lead to some sort of you know, legal catastrophe. Or even if somebody is improperly sued, it doesn't help that they're going to be found not guilty later. You still got the cost and the expense and the mental burden of defending yourself in court. But to answer the question as it was prevented, to, to uh, balance out my answer, so to speak, I believe that there are cases and points where parental consent makes a lot of sense. But again, I'm not painting with this gigantic brush here. There, it's not hard to find hypothetical situations where the parental consent doesn't make sense. And you know, the thing that you find typically from the pro-life position is that the pro-life position is so dead set on banning things, controlling things, stopping things, restricting things, that it's an all or nothing game for them. What if the teenage girl in this case is pregnant and seeking an abortion without parental consent because she's the victim of violent incest and rape? You know, maybe the last thing she wants is for her rapist to know that she's pregnant. There has got to be a court exception. 
So even if you want to go through a process of saying that parental consent is very important and a high priority, unless you come up with a good, fair, easily accessible judicial exception, then it's, it's, it's not acceptable. And maybe that means you have to swallow hard and say, well, what if there's a bunch of liberal judges out there who are going to say yes to every abortion? Well, you know what? If you want to protect innocent lives, you've got to start with the 15-year-old girl. If you can't protect her against violent consequences of things beyond her control, getting her on the wrong side of really you know, abusive parental authority, then you got nothing. Because I don't take seriously anybody's claim that they're interested in protecting innocent people if the innocent people doesn't include the woman or the girl. Number four, if you do not believe that human life begins at conception, when do you believe it begins? At what stage of development should an unborn child have human rights? Well, I think I'm going to answer this question biblically. I'm going to quote Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 25. By the way, the only piece of documentation I brought with me for this particular debate. It reads, and has always read throughout the history of Judaism, because this is Jewish scripture I'm quoting, this, if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with a child so that she has a miscarriage, yet there is not further injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint the penalty Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. This is the original text of the book of Exodus in chapter 21, referring at length to situations where a life may be taken in exchange for a life and in situations where a payment or a penalty or a fine or some sort of other compensation would be made. It starts off early in the chapter with the blanket statement, whoever strikes a person mortally shall be put to death. But then later it says, you know what, when individuals quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or a fist so that the injured party, though not dead, is confined to bed, but recovers and walks around outside with the help of a staff, then the assailant shall be free from liability except to pay for the loss of time and to arrange for full recovery. Essentially, what this passage is saying is that in the history of Judaism, as Moses wrote it, as Jesus would have understood it. The woman's death is a life-for-life -life situation. But if two men are fighting and one of them strikes a woman and she miscarries, then that's not a life-for-life -life situation. This is the perspective of Judaism. And it was the perspective of among the most esteemed biblical translations all the way through the 1990s. In uh, 1977, New American Standard Bible revising its 1971 translation. That's the version that I read for you. And at the time, it was regarded as being one of the best like-for-like, word-for-word translations of the Bible of all. Unlike other biblical translations, like the NIV, which tries to go phrase-for-phrase phrase or idea-for-idea, idea, or things that we might describe as truly paraphrases, like the, the Message by Eugene Peterson, where there isn't that fidelity to what the Jewish words were and what the Jewish words were trying to say. From the perspective of Judaism in the Old Testament and from the perspective of Christianity in the New Testament, something amazing happened, though, in 1995. The version of the NASB was rewritten out of the blue with no new scholarship, no archaeological discovery, nothing else driving it to say if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him. In other words, miscarriage, which is how, again, Judaism has always understood this passage, 
being redefined into gives birth prematurely, without any notice, of course, of the fact that at that time in human history, giving birth prematurely was more often than not a death sentence. I know there are points of view which seem to contradict this. I've read an opinion on the uh, website Stand for Reason, where an argument is made that those words could easily mean either thing. Or that maybe it makes more sense for the word to mean gives birth prematurely than to mean miscarriage. But let's not mince words here. In Inappropriate Conversation 72, Truth or Consequences for Christians, I essentially exposed the author who is expressing this opinion that it maybe it's okay for us to interpret this word as gives birth prematurely, as somebody who's not been above severely misinterpreting, perhaps even to the degree of you might question the intellectual honesty or the intellectual acumen of the author, citing that person's point of view as a counter, as a follow-up question to push back at me, doesn't serve anybody's purpose very well. I think it's pretty easy to establish that that individual's credibility severely questionable. On the other side of the scale, Fred Clark wrote a blog entry on his blog, Slacktivist, I believe is the name of it, where he went into detail citing translation after translation after translation from before the Protestant Reformation all the way until as late as modern times, where this is being translated, what I would describe translated properly. There's a different standard if a woman miscarries than if the woman is killed. So if I go with just a biblical point of view here, I think this is you know, pretty simple that I do have an answer to the question of when human life begins. It's the same answer that Jesus would have been taught when he was a child uh, begins at birth. We talk about God breathing life into somebody. It's that post-birth moment of a child taking its first breath and establishing that it does have healthy heart, healthy lung, and is able to survive. Typically speaking, the Jews of Jesus' time did not believe that an unborn child had yet you know, reached that standard of personhood or what we might call as yet having a soul. Now, does this mean that Psalm 139 is inaccurate and God did not knit us together in his womb? Of course it doesn't mean that. It just questions when the process of knitting together is really complete. Truth be known. Now, speaking as Greg, I've got what I would consider a much more conservative mindset on when life begins. But I think you'd find if you look back on previous inappropriate conversations dealing with abortion, particularly the two-part episode, that doesn't necessarily turn me into somebody who supports pro-life policies, particularly not pro-life political policies, where the solutions that come out of this question of when life begins end up being all about legality and not about actually reaching into the lives of hurting, frightened people and helping out and making a difference. Question five. Currently, when genetic testing reveals an unborn child has Down syndrome, most women choose to abort. How do you answer the charge that this phenomenon resembles the eugenics movement a century ago, the slow but deliberate weeding out of those our society would deem unfit to live? Well, again, I think that as a society, we could have an answer to that question that doesn't involve the law. And that really is where this all hits the fan that we need to find ways to encourage and support those people who either choose to give birth and put up for adoption a child with a great deal of special needs or to support and celebrate those families and you know to, pride, to find a way to make it work if a family that's facing special needs chooses to take a child home with them. I mean, you often hear these outrageous claims that any defense of abortion is a defense of infanticide. No, not true. Something special happens – 
And also, I would say something legal happens when a parent takes a child home from the hospital. When that moment of being really premature or you know, having birth defects or having Down syndrome or something comes into play, I don't see the church doing anywhere near as good a job as it claims it wants to do about supporting those particular families. That I think we would be aghast if somebody put up a Down syndrome child for adoption because we know the likelihood of that child getting adopted is depressingly low. Well, what are we doing to make that situation better? We're not addressing the real issue by simply saying, you're the biological mother, therefore you have no choice in this situation. And because you have no choice in the situation, I can kind of wash my hands of providing any sort of meaningful support. The woman has a right to choose what happens to and with her own body. And if we want her to make better decisions, if you've made the judgment call about what a good decision is and what a bad decision is, if you want her to make what you're calling the better decision, then you might want to you know, provide that sort of support. There's a reason why I don't give a lot of money to charitable causes that identify themselves as pregnancy support centers. I mean, there's other reasons why I'm hesitant to support too much support, uh, things like United Way and so forth, because I worry a little bit about how much of the money I'm giving is going to the cause I want to provide support for. I tend not to answer telephone calls or cold internet emails asking me for, uh, to provide charitable support to something. I'd rather do that face-to-face. -face. I'd rather do that in person. I'd rather know who I'm giving the support to. And the problem with pregnancy support centers is I never know the answer to that question. And I never know the answer to that question in part because I think that the amount of money that the pro-life community spends lobbying versus the amount of money that they spend actually trying to make a social difference in the lives of the people that they presumably want to support in making a very challenging decision, like being a parent who takes care of a Down syndrome child, for example. It's way out of whack. If you had every dollar back that the pro-life community has spent since Roe versus Wade, doing nothing more than lobbying to try to overturn the law, who knows how much good you can do in this world? Who knows how much good you could do? Six, do you believe an employer should be forced to violate his or her religious conscience by providing access to abortion drugs and contraception to employees? Well, first off, I don't believe that an employer should be involved in the health care business to begin with. But if we accept the idea that people get their health care through their employer, their employer then on some level becomes, well, first off, not a person, so not capable of having a conscience, not a um, authority figure who has the right to tell this employee what their medical decisions have to be. You essentially become a de facto HMO, the front page of an insurance company. You become you know, the access vehicle for health care. You become the front door, whereas maybe the hospital is the back door, the actual delivery vehicle. So once you've made that decision that as an employer, you're going to be the way your employees get health care coverage. At that point, you become what I would call agnostic to anything that we would describe as a values decision. If you don't want to provide access to morning after pills or other forms of contraception, get out of the healthcare business. Because if the female employees who work for you have a reasonable claim to want that medication, it's completely inappropriate for you to stand in their way and say, no, let's, let's not mince words here. Corporations are not people. They don't get to have a conscience. They don't get to have a vote. All of these decisions that have been made in the last you know, five to ten years, pretty much blooming during the Bush administration, some of it is sort of an overreaction to Obama's candidacy and Obama's political activism, totally inappropriate, 
absolutely offensive. Anytime someone tells me that because they're a hospital, they get to decide what medicines their, their employees can and can't take. No, no, no. You decide you want to provide health care. You've got certain applications. Suck it up and deal with it. Number seven, Alveda King, niece of Martin Luther King Jr., has said that abortion is the white supremacist's best friend, pointing to the fact that black and Latinos represent 25% of our population, but account for 59% of all abortions. How do you respond to the charge that a majority of abortion clinics are found in inner city areas with large numbers of minorities? Well, first off, thanks for bringing the race card into this. I think that we need to do a better job as, as a society first and foremost, of balancing the way we provide services, the way we treat each other, the way we think of each other. And I'm not 100% sure this quote from King's niece is helpful in getting us there. So let me just point that out right up front. Well, let me give you a Planned Parenthood-style answer to the question that's being raised about the majority of abortion clinics being found in inner-city areas where there are large numbers of minorities. If abortion were to be banned tomorrow, and all of those clinics in inner city areas were to dry up completely and disappear. Do you believe that the extremely wealthy mistress of a CEO wanting to have an abortion so that she didn't disrupt her own life and didn't create a lot of mess for this man and his wife and the, the rest of his family, think she's going to have any trouble finding an abortion? Think she's going to have any trouble, even if it's illegal everywhere in the United States, but legal in Canada? Think she's going to have a hard time getting a plane ticket? You think that's going to be a problem? The reality is that Planned Parenthood today exists in places where the kind of medical care most of us take for granted, those of us who you know, were raised in the suburbs, is unavailable. We have to deal with that. We have to deal with the harsh reality of the fact that there's something so imbalanced in the way we provide health care, all sorts of health care, uh, cancer screenings, for example, or just you know, pregnancy testing, you know, even if the woman wants to have the child. We're not doing a good enough job of leveling that playing field. So, of course, if you want to provide services to the inner city, you're going to have to do so in a, in a Planned Parenthood sort of way. And if that model offends us as conservatives, then conservatives better stand up and do something about it. The answer is not to ban Planned Parenthood or try to make sure that we can play some sort of racist game where we call out the founder of Planned Parenthood as being some sort of Nazi. None of that is helpful. Where we stand today is that these services can only be provided in this particular way because we're not doing a good enough job providing access to health care through what I would call the front door in any other way. If you'd like these clinics to disappear, they'll probably be replaced by hospitals, by hospitals where the patient is insured and where the patient can have this kind of coverage provided through insurance because whoever's providing that insurance, whether that's a third party as a single-payer system, whether that's an employer, whether that's the federal government, has no paternalistic parochial control over the decisions that that woman makes, that she can make her own decisions and find a place better than an abortion clinic to get that decision, you know, implemented. Number eight, you describe abortion as a tragic choice. If abortion is not morally objectionable, then why is it tragic? What, what does this mean that there is something about abortion that is different from other standard surgical procedures? You're kidding me, Right. You don't think that I would describe somebody who has to have you know, both their legs amputated because of an accident as a tragic choice? There are lots of medical procedures that we, def we would define in one way as being both uh, necessary or at least an important option, an important decision to be made, and yet a bad thing. 
this is perhaps the most naive thing about the pro-life community. And the pro-life community needs to grow up and wake up or stop talking so much. Because the reality is we live in a world where people on time, from time to time have to make bad decisions, where there's no good option available to you, and you've got to do the best you can with what you've been given. Just because something is unfortunate, just because it's tragic, just because it's unwanted, as unwanted as the pregnancy, for example, doesn't mean that it should be forbidden. You know, we, we don't live in a Pollyanna world where everything is hearts and flowers. Doctors have to make decisions every day where the patient would never in a million years ask for that to happen. It is absolutely, the premise of this question is a solid one. It is no different. I mean, it's different in the sense that you've got the inherent moral complexities related to abortion, but it's not different in the, in the sense that it's not hard to find a medical procedure, even something like a root canal, that the patient desperately wants and needs and yet at the same time feels is a hideous thing and tragic and unwanted, and if they could avoid the choice altogether, they certainly would. The question, in this sense, makes almost no sense. Question 9. Do you believe abortion should be legal once the unborn fetus is viable, able to survive outside the womb? Well, again, the question seems to be looking for this black and white answer where we can draw a line in the calendar. And you know what? Drawing a line in the calendar doesn't really work. If states like Arizona are now passing laws that redefine the moment of conception until a point in time that's before the sex actually occurred. I mean, you've got states that, if given a viability date, would actually pass laws that say that the woman was pregnant before she even met the man who got her pregnant. You know, so let's not be coy here. This is another attempt to come up with a political solution, a legal answer to what is essentially, I think we would all agree, a moral question. Yes, it's hard work going door to door and loving people as Jesus would, and ministering to their needs, and using the huge treasure chest that has been used to pay lobbyists to try to change the laws in this country. Instead, using it to minister to the needs of people to try to change the lives of people in this country. So, on paper, yeah, I could give you some glib answer about how, yes, once you hit the point of viability, this makes sense, that makes sense, the other makes sense, but there's no one good answer. A few years ago in Brazil, a nine-year-old girl raped by her uncle, became pregnant to the surprise of everybody, and especially her uncle, that she could become pregnant at age nine with twins. The Catholic Church in Brazil had an answer that this girl needs to remain pregnant until those babies are viable, and then a C-section can be performed on an undersized, underage girl to remove the babies. Her mother stepped in, presumably with her father's silent approval. Um, my guess is that her father was pro the father in this case was probably trying to figure out how to murder his brother, or at least resisting that temptation. Stepped in and said, "No, no, you don't. This is my nine-year-old daughter. She's not only innocent; she's a victim. This is not going to happen. And that if there's if there's a price to be paid for the two lives that are being sacrificed to save the life of this girl, then the moral cost of that is the uncle who committed the crime in the first place. Do you know what the Roman Catholic Church in Brazil did?" Now, I haven't seen this story in a couple of years. Maybe it's morphed and changed over time. But when the story broke and for the first maybe three months of news cycles or four months of news cycles after, the Roman Catholic Church excommunicated the mother, refused communion to the daughter, and let the uncle alone. The uncle can still take communion. He's committed a horrific sin. He's going to say a few Hail Marys. He's going to do some community service to make up for it. But the mother and the daughter excommunicated there's something completely unacceptable about that. Once you set a viability standard that is hard and fast, that is 
constitutional, if you will, then what you've done is you put into place a situation where you're going to have states, you're going to have parents, you're going to have doctors, you're going to have churches involved in abusing patients based on that standard. There was a case just this past year in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where a woman who was raped came in, you know, the, the next morning, raped during the night, came in, you know, in the early hours of the morning, seeking a contraceptive pill, seeking the morning after pill, is what they call it. And the, the hospital, the doctor who was in charge at that point in time, declared that he or she had a moral objection to it and refused to provide the service. Despite the circumstances, despite the patient's rights, and my understanding is that that patient and her mother even asked for a referral to another hospital or directions to another hospital so they could go and absolve this doctor of the moral dilemma he or she was in and let some other doctor take over. And this doctor even refused that. He had made a decision that she was going to, to carry to term any pregnancy that came, and it was his right to make the decision, not hers. Don't tell me that a viability law wouldn't be abused, because a viability law would be abused. Is there a point in time, as Judith Jarvis Thompson says in her, her essay, where acceding to an abortion would be positively indecent, and therefore there might be some sensible reason to declare that it, it should be illegal? Well, yeah, there, there would be one. But we haven't exhausted all of our other avenues yet. We have not done the outreach necessary. We haven't done this Jesus's way. We haven't walked the walk. We haven't gone the second mile. We haven't ministered to people. We haven't done our part. And this seeking ways to find a law that will get what we want done done doesn't make any sense. If you want to talk about viability, here's my answer to the question of viability. If you want to find a way to defeat the argument that Judah Jarvis Thompson presented, well, and again, I still haven't seen anybody defeat that argument. Oh, they, you know, quibbles here, quibbles there, but nobody's defeated the argument. Basically, what she says is that a woman doesn't have the right to the death of the child. The woman just has the right to demand not to be pregnant anymore. If you could come up with a way to non-surgically, with no risk, remove the child and incubate, if you will, for want of a better word, in such a manner that the woman is not harmed or endangered in any way medically, but the child could still be in some ways delivered for you know for want of a better word that would probably be morally acceptable you then could begin having that conversation about viability and what viability means the reality is i've just described a human farm scenario that i am quite certain your average conservative your average pro-life person would be aghast by got to be honest i'm somewhat aghast by it myself but then again, I'm equally aghast by the idea that we have accumulated this entire ton of medically generated embryos for in vitro fertilization of people who can't have children, at least through more natural means. And those embryos are living in a permanent state of, you know, for want of a better word, incarceration. They're frozen in time. They're cryogenically frozen. They're, if you're a pro-life person, that's life. Those are fully human beings. They're persons in every way. They're 100% entitled to every right any other person has. And the only time you'll hear a pro-life person complain about the lack of due process or anything else regarding the incarceration of those frozen embryonic cells is when somebody wants to do stem cell research on those very cells. Got, got news for you, people. That doesn't become a human being the second you decide that you're going to use those cells to further medical science. It's a human being the second that you fertilize the egg and stick it in the freezer to begin with. 
So let's not talk about viability as if there's some casual answer here. There isn't one. These issues are so complex and the arguments about them are so simplistic and borderline idiotic that we have got to get a lot smarter, a lot faster, if we're going to figure out how to deal, not just with the issues of things like you know, so-called partial birth abortion and abortion in the second trimester and in the third trimester, we, we might want to deal with what happens just in the, in the fertilization process to begin with. We got questions we haven't answered yet, and I'm not going to be taken down some dead-end road by this one. Question 10. If a pregnant woman and her unborn child are murdered, do you believe the criminal should face two counts of murder or serve a harsher sentence? Well, I certainly believe that the criminal should face a harsher sentence. And whether or not that comes down to two counts of murder, I think, again, uh, thank you for the trick question. I'm going to definitely bypass it and go back to, well, what would, what would the Bible say about it? Not the Bible revised by the NASB in 1995 for political reasons, but what did the Bible actually say about it from the perspective of those who actually wrote it? What did it mean for almost 2,000 years before it became politically expedient enough to redefine it? So no, we're not talking about two murders here. If you're a Judeo-Christian person, now, I think I've just described a lot of the pro-life movement, especially the evangelical conservative wing of the pro-life movement, as not being Judeo-Christian. I'm not saying you're not Christian. You're just some new cultic form of Christianity because the Judeo-Christian perspective is that you've got one murder and one miscarriage in that situation, or you've got a violent death that terminates a pregnancy. But I do think that it is a much bigger deal to do harm to a pregnant woman than it is to do harm to somebody who's not pregnant because, you know, again, the Jewish tradition and certainly the point of view that Jesus Christ would have had was that that is the potential life. You know, when that baby's born and the breath of God comes into it, you've got yourself a person there. And that's a different matter. I also think that if somebody were to perform some sort of hideously evil form of torture on a woman with the goal of making her sterile when he was done. So, again, he didn't just want to murder the woman, but he wanted to murder her and sterilize her. Then I think that that sort of crime should be a bigger deal, too. But then again, I'm opposed to torture. And I think probably if I were a pro-choice person in a debate, I'd probably be in a debate across the aisle from a pro-life person who, being politically a conservative, might not be able to hold the same standard and the same pedigree I would have about being opposed not just to what we would both agree to call torture, but that I'm opposed to a lot of other activities which clearly to the average person are torture that my opponent would have a lot of good reasons in his mind or her mind for saying it's slightly different from that. It's not exactly torture. It's not really torture. It's just an extreme technique. Listen, if you deprive somebody of the ability to bear children, whether they're pregnant at the time or they become pregnant later in a violent act, especially that violent act is designed to accomplish that goal, you know, the penalty should be bigger and the penalty should be bigger for reasons that I think both pro-life and pro-choice people would agree are obvious. This language of slipping murder in there is where things get tricky. And if you do not understand the consequences of trying to define abortion as murder, then please go back and listen to Inappropriate Conversations episodes 59 and 60, where I speak in great detail about objections to abortion, or better, agreements to abortion. This entire dialogue around 10 questions has all been around the idea of objection. It all furthers the course of polarization. And I think, I would hope, that when somebody is asking a pro-life candidate a question about you know, their view of a woman's right and a woman's right to choose and where the lines are, that it is an effort to try to find some sort of compromise. Every time you hear exceptions for you know, rape and health and well-being and life of the mother and all that, 
those are efforts to compromise. And what we've certainly seen in the last year or two is a whole-scale, full-on rejection of those compromises, preemptively even, from people in the pro-life movement. That two-part episode of Inappropriate Conversations reflects my position, not as somebody who's pretending to answer these questions from a strictly pro-choice perspective, but my position as a radical moderate who is neither pro-life nor pro-choice. But one of the key assumptions in there is that there are serious consequences to calling abortion murder, and I've yet to meet anybody in the pro-life community who I take as credible who's willing to own those consequences. There are a few people in the pro-life community who are getting awfully close to coming up with what I would describe as the obviously wrong answer there. And a lot of them, a heck of a lot of them, ran for office in 2012 and lost. The American people have spoken on this issue, and we get confused about it all the time. Instead of this a closing statement, if you will, we get confused about it all the time. You hear the pro-choice side talk about how 80% of the people in the country are on their side, and the pro-life side, quoting statistics, say 80% of the people agree with them. Well, the reality is, let me give both of these sides, mistaken, error-prone as they are, the benefit of the doubt, by imposing something that I, I think I read first from Larry Wingett in one of his business books called the 20-60-20 rule. Wingett's idea was that in any organization, not only a baseball team, you're always going to have somebody in the cleanup spot, you're always going to have somebody batting ninth. So you're always going to have 20% of the people in the organization who are you know, kicking butt, taking names, getting the job done, superstars. And you're always going to have 20% of the people in the organization who are holding you back. They're inept. They're not getting it done. They're insubordinate. They're opposed to your goals for success. And they probably need to be removed from your company as quickly as you can. And then you got this 60% that's in the middle. They're not good. They're not great. They're, you know, they could be better, but they're not terrible. They're in the middle. And what happens when you promote the, tw the top 20% or those people prove themselves and move on to another organization if you can't provide opportunity and compensation for them is that there are people in the 60%, the middle, who step up and make a difference. Their ability to shine has been kind of overwhelmed by a superstar in their midst. But now that the superstar is out of the way, now that person's been promoted, they can step right up and they do. Likewise, though, when you get rid of the person batting ninth, somebody else is batting ninth. Somebody's going to slide into that position. Somebody whose performance is mediocre at best is going to turn in bad performance. That's the 20-60-20 rule. Well, even on this issue, there are probably 20% of the people in this country who are pro-life to the extent that they would be very comfortable kidnapping, torturing, imprisoning women to make sure they have babies, that at no point does an abortion happen. And there's probably 20% of these people who would take the bait on these questions and say, yes, it's pro-choice all the time. In fact, if the baby's born and the mom doesn't like what it looks like, you can slit its throat right then and there. You know, there's a stridently pro-choice camp and there's a stridently pro-life camp. But I would suggest that at its heart, these numbers are not as big as people say. It's probably 20% on one extreme, 20% on the other. I'll let you draw the conclusion on which one of these is top and which one's bottom from the perspective of the scale that was presented by Larry Wingate in his book. But the majority of Americans are somewhere in this middle. They're in the 60%. They aligned themselves in this election cycle with the pro-choice movement. And if the pro-life movement takes the same strident positions in two years and in four years that they did now, the American people will do it again. Because there is no 80% majority either way. It's 20-60-20, but if you hitch your wagon to the wrong cause, if you decide that rape is God's blessing and that a woman who is raped needs to give, needs to give birth to the child so she doesn't you know, 
her two wrongs don't make a right, as if she was somehow involved in the first wrong to begin with. Any of these things which fail to recognize the increasingly crystallizing perspective among Americans, and frankly, this is around the world, that the woman is the owner of her body. And at the end of the day, whatever restrictions we put on that had better be just as limited as the kind of restrictions that a Wyoming or Nevada rancher is going to insist the government do with his relationship with his farm. It's the same concept. In fact, it's a bigger deal because whatever relationship I may have with my house, whatever relationship I may have with my car, my relationship with my body is more important. And my degree of authority, my degree of final authority is much, much greater. Notice that I answered all of these questions without referring even once, even elliptically, to the case that happened last month in Ireland, where a woman who was in the midst of a painful miscarriage was denied an abortion, or denied not even an abortion, just the process of dealing with the miscarriage medically, because the baby still had a faint and growing fainter heartbeat, that no doctor in that situation had any assumption that this child was going to survive. The only question from viability was when could they provide medical treatment? Because as a nation, the doctors presumed, or either really were, dealing with the same kind of fetal heartbeat law that is being proposed and debated even as we speak in states like Ohio. The reality is, any decision which takes away the rights of the woman to decide when she can save her own life, well, you know, I don't even see how you can make an argument that that's a conservative worldview. To me, a conservative worldview is... I got my gun, I know how to use it, and if you threaten my life, I'm likely to shoot you. In this case, Ireland took the gun out of the woman's hands and effectively used it on her. But I made no mention of that case, and I didn't need to. If you'd like to hear more about stories like that, one way to do it is on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher is not just a way that you can access podcasts on the go. It's also a way that you can access the news of the day. It's becoming, in some ways, an answer for the mainstream media, where people who are more interested today perhaps than ever before in blogs as a source of commentary in podcasts as a source of news information and commentary can pick the information they want and have it delivered in the way they want through Stitcher Smart Radio. Of course, if you have different opinions on this inappropriate conversation, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com and show notes are enabled at the website www.inappropriateconversations.org. I would only offer this disclaimer. For the last 30 minutes or so, I've only been speaking from the perspective of a hypothetical pro-choice candidate and wanted to demonstrate nothing more that these questions that apparently a lot of conservative Christian bloggers think cannot be answered actually can be answered quite easily. Truth is, they can be answered both easily and angrily, and it's the angrily side of that equation that probably explains more than anything else why the questions don't get asked, or why the answers themselves get censored. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
by Kevin McLeod.